Preface to Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Preface to Pygmalion, a Professor of Phonetics. As will be seen later on, Pygmalion needs not a preface but a sequel, which I have supplied in its due place. The English have no respect for their language, and will not teach their children to speak it. They spell it so abominably that no man can teach himself what it sounds like. It is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. German and Spanish are accessible to foreigners. English is not accessible even to Englishmen. The reformer England needs today is an energetic phonetic enthusiast. That is why I have made such a one the hero of a popular play. There have been heroes of that kind crying in the wilderness for many years past. When I became interested in the subject toward the end of the 1870s, Melville Bell was dead, but Alexander J. Ellis was still a living patriarch with an impressive head always covered by a velvet skull-cap, for which he would apologize to public meetings in a very courtly manner. He and Tito Pagliardini, another phonetic veteran, were men whom it was impossible to dislike. Henry Sweet, then a young man, lacked their sweetness of character. He was about as conciliatory to conventional morals as Ibsen or Samuel Butler. His great ability as a phonetician—he was, I think, the best of them all at his job—would have entitled him to high official recognition, and perhaps enabled him to popularize his subject, but for his satanic contempt for all academic dignitaries and persons in general who thought more of Greek than of phonetics. Once, in the days when the Imperial Institute rose in South Kensington, and Joseph Chamberlain was booming the empire, I induced the editor of a leading monthly review to commission an article from Sweet on the imperial importance of his subject. When it arrived, it contained nothing but a savagely derisive attack on a professor of language and literature whose chair Sweet regarded as proper to a phonetic expert only. The article, being libelous, had to be returned as impossible, and I had to renounce my dream of dragging its author into the limelight. When I met him afterwards, for the first time in many years, I found to my astonishment that he, who had been a quite tolerably presentable young man, had actually managed by sheer scorn to alter his personal appearance, until he had become a sort of walking repudiation of Oxford and all its traditions. It must have been largely in his own, despite that he was squeezed into something called a readership of phonetics there. The future of phonetics rests probably with his pupils, who all swore by him, but nothing could bring the man himself into any sort of compliance with the university, to which he nevertheless clung by divine right in an intensely Oxonian way. I dare say his papers, if he has left any, include some satires that may be published without two destructive results fifty years hence. He was, I believe, not in the least an ill-natured man, very much the opposite, I should say but he would not suffer fools gladly. Those who knew him will recognize in my third act the allusion to the patent shorthand in which he used to write postcards, and which may be acquired from a four-and-sixpenny manual published by the Clarendon Press. The postcards which Mrs. Higgins describes are such as I have received from Sweet. I would decipher a sound which a cockney would represent by zur, and a Frenchman by sieur and then write demanding with some heat what on earth it meant. 
sweet, with boundless contempt for my stupidity, would reply that it not only meant, but obviously was, the word result, as no other word containing that sound and capable of making sense with the context existed in any language spoken on earth. That less expert mortals should require fuller indications was beyond Sweet's patience. Therefore, though the whole point of his current shorthand is that it can express every sound in the language perfectly, vowels as well as consonants, and that your hand has to make no stroke except the easy and current ones with which you write M, N, and U, L, P, and Q, scribbling them at whatever angle comes easiest to you, his unfortunate determination to make this remarkable and quite legible script serve also as a shorthand reduced it in his own practice to the most inscrutable of cryptograms. His true objective was the provision of a full, accurate, legible script for our noble but ill-dressed language, but he was led past that by his contempt for the popular Pittman system of shorthand, which he called the pitfall system. The triumph of Pittman was a triumph of business organization. There was a weekly paper to persuade you to learn Pittman. There were cheap textbooks and exercise books and transcripts of speeches for you to copy, and schools where experienced teachers coached you up to the necessary proficiency. Sweet could not organize his market in that fashion. He might as well have been the Sibyl who tore up the leaves of prophecy that nobody would attend to. The four-and-sixpenny manual, mostly in his lithographed handwriting, that was never vulgarly advertised, may some day perhaps be taken up by a syndicate and pushed upon the public as the Times pushed the Encyclopedia Britannica. But until then it will certainly not prevail against Pittman. I have bought three copies of it during my lifetime, and I am informed by the publishers that its cloistered existence is still a steady and healthy one. I actually learned the system two several times, and yet the shorthand in which I am writing these lines is Pittman's, and the reason is that my secretary cannot transcribe Sweet, having been perforce taught in the schools of Pittman. Therefore Sweet railed at Pittman as vainly as Thersides railed at Ajax. His raillery, however it may have eased his soul, gave no popular vogue to current shorthand. Pygmalion Higgins is not a portrait of Sweet, to whom the adventure of Eliza Doolittle would have been impossible. Still, as will be seen, there are touches of Sweet in the play. With Higgins's physique and temperament Sweet might have set the Thames on fire. As it was, he impressed himself professionally on Europe to an extent that made his comparative personal obscurity, and the failure of Oxford to do justice to his eminence, a puzzle to foreign specialists in his subject. I do not blame Oxford, because I think Oxford quite right in demanding a certain social amenity from its nurslings. Heaven knows it is not exorbitant in its requirements. For although I well know how hard it is for a man of genius with a seriously underrated subject to maintain serene and kindly relations with the men who underrate it, and who keep all the best places for less important subjects which they profess without originality and sometimes without much capacity for them, Still, if he overwhelms them with wrath and disdain, he cannot expect them to heap honours on him. Of the later generations of phoneticians I know little. Among them towers the poet laureate, to whom perhaps Higgins may owe his Miltonic sympathies, though here again I must disclaim all portraiture. But if the play makes the public aware that there are such people as phoneticians, and that they are among the most important people in England at present, it will serve its turn. I wish to boast that Pygmalion has been an extremely successful play all over Europe and North America, as well as at home. 
it is so intensely and deliberately didactic, and its subject is esteemed so dry, that I delight in throwing it at the heads of the wiseacres who repeat the parrot-cry that art should never be didactic. It goes to prove my contention that art should never be anything else. Finally, and for the encouragement of people troubled with accents that cut them off from all high employment, I may add that the change wrought by Professor Higgins in the flower-girl is neither impossible nor uncommon. The modern concierge's daughter, who fulfills her ambition by playing the Queen of Spain in Rue Blas at the Théâtre Français, is only one of many thousands of men and women who have sloughed off their native dialects and acquired a new tongue. But the thing has to be done scientifically, or the last state of the aspirant may be worse than the first. An honest and natural slum dialect is more tolerable than the attempt of a phonetically untaught person to imitate the vulgar dialect of the golf club, and I am sorry to say that in spite of the efforts of our Academy of Dramatic Art, there is still too much sham golfing English on our stage, and too little of the noble English of Forbes Robertson. End to the Preface of Pygmalion The cast for this dramatic reading of Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw are as follows. The narrator was read by Kirsten Ferrari and Mary Anderson. Daughter, Miss Eansford Hill, read by Susie G. Mother, Mrs. Eansford Hill, read by Gazina. Bystander, read by Peter Yearsley. Freddie Eansford Hill, read by Eonish. The Flower Girl, Eliza Doolittle, read by Kristen Hughes. Gentleman, Captain Pickering, read by Martin Clifton. The Note-Taker, Professor Henry Higgins, read by Alex Foster. Sarcastic Bystander, read by Peter Yearsley. Mrs. Pierce, read by Christiane Levesque. Mr. Doolittle, read by David Barnes. Mrs. Higgins, read by Larissa Jaworski. Parlor-Maid, read by Linda Wilcox. File Editor and Director, David Lawrence End of Preface to Pygmalion